Well, my best friend growing up is here this morning. Nick and Michelle are sitting in the back there. And uh, Nick knows lots of stories about me, but he won't tell them because he loves me. Um, but uh, Nick and I, when we were talking the, just yesterday, I think it was, about when our friendship first began, and I think it began, I know it was in junior high, I think it was just at the end of seventh grade, and uh, we met, even how we met was kind of a funny story. But Nick and I hung around together all the time as teenagers. We were always together. We did all kinds of things together. And a couple of things about both Nick and I, we both loved the water and loved to swim. And so often what we were doing in the summer had something to do with swimming or water or, or whatever. Both of us were a bit adventuresome, but our adventures only went to a point. If we really thought we might get hurt, we weren't going to do it. Uh, a lot of times we didn't realize we could have, but, we, you know, we were a bit adventuresome. The other thing was we were both lifeguards. We both worked as lifeguards together at the same Bible camp during the summer. And so when you put all that together, there are some stories that happen, some things that happen when Nick and I were together in some of that setting of water and adventuresomeness. There were two occasions when Nick and I were together, and we were standing and watching this deep water running by and rushing by, and in the midst of that water, there was someone that suddenly started crying out, help, help, I'm drowning. One of those times, I looked at Nick, he looked at me, we went, and we both dove in and grabbed the people involved and pulled them out. One time, we were standing on the shore. We both looked at each other and started laughing as this person was crying out, Help, help, I'm drowning. Now, even need to make it worse, it was a relative of mine. Now, to just hear those two stories together, the, the situation seems incongruent. How could these two, you know, kind of adventuresome guys and, and their, you know, later teenage years, how could in one instant they see a person in the middle of a river in deep water struggling and they, you know, play the, the lifeguards and dive in and go get them and pull them out, and yet in the very, you know, very similar context, watch somebody floating down in deep water yelling, help, help, I'm drowning, and stand on the side and laugh. Well, obviously, there's more context involved. There's more to the story. There's things you need to know to fill that in. In the first account where we went into the water, we used to go down to the Lehigh River and there were some cliffs there that we would dive off of. And you had to swim across the river, get to the cliffs, climb up, and then you'd dive off and then swim back and then dive off. Well, a, a guy and his girlfriend decided they were going to 
due to the cliffs, and they started swimming across the Lehigh. I think they were about a stroke away from touching the walls. The girl panicked, turned around, started swimming back the other way. She got into the middle of the river and started just floundering because she didn't think she could make it anymore. And the boyfriend, he decided he was going to play the hero. So he goes swimming out. He was not a strong swimmer. He, she grabs him. They're both going down. And we looked at each other and say, okay, let's go. And we pulled them out. The second incident, and those of you who are younger, do not do this. We used to go to this place that had a bridge and the water would overflow it when the river would get real high. And the bridge had tubes through it. And so we would go upriver from the tubes and hold back the river with our backs to the, to the water until the pressure built up, then let go and shoot through the tube. And on the other side of the tube, there was a ledge. And you landed on the ledge, got up, and then you'd come back and you'd do it again. Don't do this at home. Right? Well, we were with one of my relatives doing this one particular day, and we shot through the tubes. He shot through the tubes. He hit the ledge. The ledge was filled with algae. He slipped off the ledge, kept going, went into the deep part of the river right after this ledge. And he starts panicking and is yelling, help, help, I'm drowning. Now, what Nick and I knew was he was heading down the river. And it went from nine feet to four feet to three feet to six inches in about a 50-foot oh, 50 section. And so Nick and I are on the sidelines yelling, Stand up! And laughing our heads off. Well, finally, this relative of mine stands up and finds out he's in water this deep. Now, in order to understand those stories, you must understand the context. Or we sound like, you know, maniacal people laughing at somebody drowning. That same idea, that same concept, that same reality of understanding the whole context is necessary as we come to chapter 22 of the story of Genesis. The story of Abraham. Because the story we are looking at is a very, very difficult story. As God seems to be standing on the shore and watching somebody in absolute despair and in absolute panic and seems to do nothing for so long. The story is the story of where God comes to Abraham. And says to Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son to me. Take him to a mountain that I will show you, a place that I will show you, and kill him. Now, I don't know about you, but that violates my sensibilities. I'm offended by that. And if I look just at the surface, if I look just at the event, then what I am seeing seems to be maniacal, like two guys standing on the shore laughing at somebody drowning in the water. 
but I have to have the whole context. And I have to see the entire story. And the theme over the next several weeks, and I don't know if it'll end up being two or three messages, depending on how much we can get done this morning. But what you see in this context is this theme. Radical obedience. Obeying God even when the circumstances don't seem to make sense. And there are many times that that is true, and not in the way that you will see with Abraham where God says, you know, do this, what seems to be an immoral thing. But in the sense that at times God will ask us to walk in ways that seem to violate our human sensibilities. To put others before myself, that violates my own sensibility. To trust God when I can't see a way out. And I tend to be an answer person. I want an answer. I want to know how it's going to happen. And God says, trust me. That goes against my sensibilities. When there are decisions that I make where the world says, that's foolish. Taking a stand at work, taking a stand at school, taking a stand in a relationship that I know is going to cause tension and difficulty where God asks me to take a stand. There are many incidences in our lives where God will ask us to do something that seems to be illogical. And yet, God often puts us in those kinds of situations. God asks us often to obey, even when the reason may not seem clear. When we come to Genesis chapter 22, that's exactly what's taking place. And if I have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there to Genesis 22, because there's a couple things I want to point out. As you come into this, and and Moses is writing this, he is very careful to tell us that radical obedience is a willingness to obey, even when it violates our sensibilities. And often when God is training us to do something great for him, he will put us in that place where we have to choose on the basis of faith to trust him. And that's what's taking place here. And as Moses is writing this section, he does it in a way that says, this is unique, this is special, This is not the norm in terms of what God normally does in the life of a person in asking them to do something which seems to violate his very character. How do I know that? Well, Moses does a number of things. The way he structures this whole section, he's so careful in the way he's structured. There's three different sections. Each section is designed the same way. Each of those sections begins with someone crying out to Abraham. In the first one, it's God, Abraham. In the second one, it's like it's, it's Isaac. Father, Abraham. In the third, it's the angel of the Lord. Abraham, Abraham. In each of those sections, immediately after the call to Abraham, he responds with these words in Hebrew, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. Following his response, 
there is a declaration concerning the impact of a choice of faith. In the first one, Abraham will say to his servants, we're going up on the mountain, but we together, both of us will return. And yet God asks him to, to sacrifice Isaac. In the second section, as Isaac yells out to his father, Father, where, where's the lamb? Abraham's response of faith is this. God will provide the lamb. And in the third one, when the angel of the Lord cries out and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop! God responds to the faith by saying, child, here's how I bless those who choose to walk by faith. And then each section ends with this. And they went off together. They went off together. The first section is found in beginning in the middle of verse 1, I'm sorry, and goes all the way down to verse 6. The second one begins in verse 7, where Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, Ab, here I am. Now, the NIV translates it, yes, my son. Literally, it's here I am. And then the third one begins in verse 9. And then in verse 11, where the angel cries out and says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham's response is, here I am. And in each of those sections, there's a little different focus. But what Moses is saying is, take a look. There's a context here. You need to understand this well to understand what's going on. God is not being mean. God is not being uh, foolish. God is simply working in the life of his servant in a very powerful way. Now, as we come into this section, I want to look over it, and it'll be over three weeks. But as we look at this, the first thing we need to do is we need to make sense of this command in order to avoid potential evil in our lives. This is a very unique command. And as you begin to look at it, there's within the context, again, some interesting things that take place. Do you notice in verse 2 it says, Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Even in that couple of ver- that one little verse in those phrases, there's a couple things that take place. The first thing is, God says something he seldom says when he gives a command. He says, please. Now, it's not translated in the NIV. But where it says take is followed by a little particle in the Hebrew language. It's, it's two little letters. It's actually a letter with a vowel understructure. Where God softens the command. He says, Abraham, please do this. Secondly, there's the wording. Take and go and all of those words. If you look in the Hebrew and you go back to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, where God first comes to Abraham, it is almost the same words, almost exactly the same words that are being used here. God says, listen, we're repeating that, 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 that lesson, that if I command you obey, 
But there's another very important word that's found in these first verses. And that is in first, verse 1 where it says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. Everything we read after that word is placed within the context of this being a test of Abraham. God never was going to take Isaac. God was never going to allow this. This was a way to strengthen Abraham's faith, and even more so, to demonstrate that faith to Abraham and to God's glory. It's a test. Now, as we make our way into that command, there's a couple things we need to look at. First of all, this command was given before the existence of God's complete revelation. Do you understand that you, I don't care where you are in your spiritual journey, you understand more about God than Abraham did? You understand more about his character? You understand more about how he works? You understand more about what he is like? We can look back to the cross and understand that the cross declares things about God that Abraham knew nothing about. We can look at 4,000 years of salvation history and come to an understanding of who God is because we have God's complete revelation. We have the Old Testament and we have the Mosaic Covenant and we see how sacrifice is necessary and how God provides the sacrifice for his people. And we can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where man thumbs their nose at God and God says, I will take an animal in order that I can continue to interact with you. And the Mosaic law and all the laws of, of God's moral character and the things that he does. We have that all the way through the Old Testament. Then we have the revelation of Jesus himself, God himself, God incarnate, the word becoming flesh. And we see what God is like. We see his grace and his mercy. We see God in Christ dying for you and for me. And we have God's revelation. And then we have the New Testament, which is the explanation of what it means for God to reveal himself in flesh. We understand what Abraham couldn't. And so for Abraham, there was an incredible struggle. He lived at a time where People believed that gods called them to sacrifice their children. It was common. God was teaching Abraham, I am nothing like them. And the lesson begins with Isaac. Secondly, this is a command involving direct revelation outside of Scripture. You understand Abraham had nothing to compare this to. God somehow spoke directly to Abraham. It doesn't happen today. If you're hearing voices, come speak to me. I'm not saying it's impossible. 
But I am saying that's not how God works today. Why? Because we have the complete revelation. He wrote it out. He wrote the instructions. Some of you probably have parents that are good cooks. We had, my mom was an amazing cook. But you know how she used to cook? A little dab of this, a little dab of that, a little more of this, a little more of that. She could talk us through it. She could communicate to us through it. We could watch her do it. But you know, we finally got it right when we said this. Stop, I'm going to write it down. Now, how much sugar did you put in? How much flour did you put in? And we wrote it down. Why? Because when we wrote it down, we could go back to it every time and say, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. This command was given before then. Before that written down instructions, recipe, if you like, for life was given. But thirdly, this command is given for a specific purpose. Remember, it's to test Abraham, not to reveal God's character, not to reveal God's will so much as to test Abraham, to strengthen him, to put him into a difficult situation so that he can learn how to deal with it in a proper way through faith. This is basic training. Actually, no. This is special forces training. Where you are placed in that incredibly difficult situation to show what you're made of. Not to God. God already knew. But for Abraham. And then finally, this is a command that could not be given today. I don't care what voice I heard. I don't care what vision I have. If I experience something and it tells me to do something in opposition to what God has revealed about himself, Paul says, I don't care if I come preaching a different gospel or an angel comes preaching a different gospel. That which violates God's revelation It is not from God. Period. Now, Abraham could struggle with this. Why? He didn't have full revelation. He didn't fully understand God. This was a test that God could put before Abraham. He could not put before us. Because if I heard a voice that says, take your son or your grandson and go out and sacrifice him on an altar, my response is going to be, uh-uh. Why? Because here's what God's revelation says. You come to me and say, God is telling me to do this. First of all, I'm going to want to know, how did you know God was telling you to do that? And if you're hearing voices, we're going to talk. But often it's like, well, I just feel like this is what I need to do. Or I just don't think God would really. And my response is going to be, is that what God's word says? And if the answer is no, then it is so clear. It's not from God. If you have a sense that you need to lie about something to to please God, it's not from God. 
If you're in a relationship that violates God's standards, a believer with an unbeliever moving towards a position of being married, God says, don't be unequally yoked. Don't marry someone who isn't a believer, who's not moving in the same direction you are. If you are married and you're just not happy, God couldn't want me not to be happy. I need to get a divorce. No, you don't. How do I know? God's word. You see, that command could not be given today. We live in a different context. And so we need to ask the question, how do we know what God's will is today? Should we listen for voices? Should we, you know, look towards heaven for signs? I've told this story before. It's an old classic. You know, the farmer who in one summer was out planting and plowing his fields, and he looked up and up in the sky, he saw these three letters, G, P, C, And he said, I know God's will for me. Go preach Christ. And this guy couldn't preach his way out of a paper bag. Terrible. Tried to preach, tried to do all this stuff, totally failed. Finally, his wife came up and said to him, again, this is his story, right? Came up to him and said, why do you want to be a preacher? And he said, because God told me. How do you know God told me? Because in the sky, he wrote G-P-C. His wife says, well, what did that mean? Go preach Christ. His wife said, no. It meant go plant corn. We have a better way. And this morning, I just want to take a few moments to talk about how do I know what God is asking me to do, the directions in which he is moving me. Well, just a couple things to look at. A lot of this comes from uh, Blackaby's uh, knowing God or experiencing God. Just a couple things. First of all, I mean, if you don't understand this already, let me hit it again. Does this action conform to God's clear revelation of himself and his will? Does this conform to what God has revealed in the recipe book? in the instruction manual, in what he has written down? Because if the answer is no, it does not conform, then no, it is not God's will. I don't care how good it feels. I don't care how you know, happy it's going to make you. I don't care any of those things. Not because I don't care about your happiness or care about how you feel, but I know that those things are transient and temporary and can be very confusing. Because I know it's what God's best for you is. He's our designer. He wrote the instruction manual. You know how it goes down. It's so interesting. I just wrote a statistic about divorce. And they went back and they interviewed people who had been divorced like two years after the divorce and those who had worked through the trouble of their marriage two years later. 80% of those who had been through the divorce said they wish they had gone back and worked it out. I believe it was 5% of the people who had worked it out said they wish they'd gone back or tried to work it out, wish they'd gone back and divorced them. God's word tells us how to live and how to live well. Does it conform to his will? 
Secondly, does this action align with the advice and support of my spiritual community? God has given us community. God has given us relationships where we go and we can interact and ask the question, does this seem wise to you? Does this seem like God is moving in this direction? Does God seem to be doing this or doing that? Do you think I'm being, I'm making a good decision? Many years ago, I remember one of the times that I was on my face before God saying, I don't understand you. I don't get you. I don't know why you're doing this. I want out. Was in the midst of a ministry where things had just fallen apart. There were some folks in the ministry that were attacking me. That's fine. They were attacking my ministry. That's fine. And they were attacking my family. That wasn't. It was a horrible time. And I can remember just praying and saying, God, I want out of this. And going and speaking to people that I really respected. And I remember them saying, Keith, I don't think God is asking you to leave. I think he's asking you to fight it through. That's community. That's your friends. That's your mentors. That's your, 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 your fellow compatriots that you are walking the walk with, who know you, who know your life, who know your skills, who know your tendency, who, who know your flesh patterns, and are able to say, I believe this is what God is doing. Think this through. Abraham didn't have that. Abraham didn't have God's revelation complete and full. Thirdly, if you're making a decision, what would God have me to do? Does this action involve a sense of leading from God's spirit? This is more ineffable. This is less tangible. But do I sense God leading me in this direction? When I was in the middle of that destruction many years ago, it has nothing to do with grace. Don't worry. And I was struggling through it. I can remember just a sense of God does not want me to leave. I wanted to leave. But I sense God didn't. When it did come time to leave and we were ready to leave Louisiana and come up here, it was so interesting because it was, there was lots of good things that were happening. But it was so clear in an ineffable way, a sense of God's leading. It's time to leave. My community would agree with me. What is this? Fourthly, does this action align with my talents and experience? When I was in the middle of that struggle, just crying out to God, saying, God, what are you doing? You don't make sense here. My desire was to become a greeter at Walmart. That looked to me like the perfect job in all of the world. All you do is, welcome to Walmart. Welcome to Walmart. Do you want a cart? Welcome to Walmart. But if you know me, if you know my love for the local church, if you know how much I love to preach, you know, some of you, if I asked you to come up here and preach, you would pass out. I'd go, yes. That's gifting and experience. Is this leading in that direction or is it leading away from that? Is it 
go preach Christ and I can't even preach my way out of a paper bag? Or from my experiences and my talents, is it go plant corn? That's easy. Fifthly, does this action reflect the reality of my circumstances? Do the circumstances line up? And then finally, does this action evidence a God-centered and other-centered motivation? Am I doing this in some way that I am bringing glory to God and seeking to serve others? Now, when we come back next week, I want to look at another aspect of this. Because in this story, there is an incredible offense. And the offense is this, that God would ask that Abraham would kill an innocent person in order to please him. That's what the jihadists say. That's what the Islamists say. That's what the radicals say. Is that what God's saying here? And if it isn't here, how is it that innocent Jesus died for me to please God? Because this very story is echoed throughout the entire New Testament. But before we look at that, the question today is this. How do I know what God wants me to do? Not through a voice out of the sky. Not through a direct revelation. But God has provided a means so different from Abraham to know what God would have me to do. His word, my community, his experience, my experiences, his spirit, the talents, structure he's given in my life, the circumstances, and examining my motivations is how I know how God is directing. I know there's one way that God always directs, and that is to a relationship with him. And above all else, every Sunday we talk about this. All of this begins when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and accept him as our Savior. Yes, the innocent payment for the guilty person that satisfies the holiness of God. And once that relationship is established, then God is at work in our lives to lead us and guide us to accomplish his purpose for our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example that we see here in in Abraham. Father, we pray that you would allow us to be folks that look at your word, look at the revelation of who you are through Old Testament, New Testament, through the sending of your son. Father, we can know your will through those things. Father, we can know that you long for us to be in a relationship with you through accepting what Christ has already accomplished for us. 
Father, we know that you would have us live a life that is glorifying to you and seeks to serve and love others well. Father, we can know the specifics for our life through the revelation you provide us in your word and through the community and the leading of your spirit. And Father, we can know grace and trust to know that you will work all things out as we seek your guidance and direction. Father, may we be those who are radically obedient, knowing well your will for us. And we ask it all in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.